Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Andre Ivanov, a strategy and risk boffin hell-bent on getting business folk to make better decisions, Andre is a fellow pod host and student of Professor Ritson. He's also one of Call to Action's time-travelling guests, joining us now from tomorrow morning in New Zealand. He puts his PhD in economics to the test by hosting Business Games, an educational podcast and newsletter series applying game theory to help leaders deal with uncertainty. Andre says the concept of games is an incredibly powerful tool for strategy and anyone in governance, risk and strategy must familiarise oneself with how to use it. Welcome to the show, Andre. Thank you very much for having me, Giles. What an introduction. Thank you. Good stuff. Right. Seven quick fire questions. Number one, Mac or PC? PC. Ooh. Book or Facebook? Book. LeBron James or Magic Johnson? Uh, it's not Michael Jordan. God damn it. Magic. <laughs> Magic. I'm old school. <laughs> Number four. Experiment or play? Play. Game theory or complexity theory? Game theory for me, which is interestingly enough connected to complexity theory if you look at the Wikipedia. I don't know what these are. I can guess. But Steinlager or Wacker Changi? Ah, Changi. Steinlager is big and kind of, you know, whatever, corporate. Wakachang is uh, craft, so always craft. Okay. Right, a New Zealand one for you now. Togs or undies? Oh, God. Togs. <laughs> Have you seen that? I've, I saw recently, or today, for the first time ever, it's an ad from New Zealand from Trumpet Ice Cream called Simplifying Summer. No, I haven't. It's, it, sounds like, it sounds like a keyword. It's an iconic brand. Yeah, yeah. It's all about uh, at what distance from the sea do togs become undies? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's brilliant. I'll look it up. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll add the link to that on this episode, I think, because everyone needs to see it. Andre, thank you so much for joining us. We start every episode of Call to Action by asking guests to talk about how their career began and the often not so linear paths they take to get to where they are now. So you have a highly impressive PhD in economics, but what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper job? I was thinking about the distinction, uh, but, you know, while listening to other episodes of Call to Action, I was, I have this philosophical question to you, like, what's proper in a way? So my first job was taking orders and being a kitchen hand at a local pizza delivery place uh, when I was uh, when I was in high school. You show up, you do stuff, you get paid. So yeah, so, so, sounds like a proper job to me. It's not it's not necessarily a career that I set out to to do, but at that time it was it, it was a job. You know, and so, and then I've done lots of other stuff, like being a research assistant, a teaching assistant, going through the PhD, you kind of have to teach. So that's, that's how you finance your, your PhD. And if we're talking about the stuff afterwards, then my first proper job was 
working for a McKinsey spin-off called Elsnermann Weiler uh, Credit Consult. Uh, it was a German company. So I guess that's that's the thing. I think I know where you're going, with, but a question to you. How do, how do you distinguish that? How do your guests usually distinguish? It's a good question. I would say a proper job is one that holds your attention and stops you thinking about what's next. However, Andre, I've seen your CV and I've seen how much you've moved around. So I'm not sure you're yet, even yet to, yet to find it. No, exactly right. Because in a, in a way, and, you know, we, we, we keep constantly reading about and we compare to our parents, right, who probably stayed in one place for longer. Uh, and we all move around because there's just kind of the nature of work. So um, that's what attracted me to consulting because I could... So I still kind of grew up in that era where if if I read career advice, then being a job hopper was a negative thing. And so I, I thought effectively, like, how could I job hop without job hopping? It's like, oh, I, you know, let, let me set up my own consultancy. And then I'm a consultant and director of my own consultancy. Uh, but in fact, every six months, there is a different gig, right? Yeah. So that, that allowed me to actually combine the two things. Like I was always thinking about what's next, like what is the next project I actually quite consciously never worked for the project I was working, but I was always working for the next one. So I always had half a mind to not only deliver on this project, but also think about how does this lead into something else, mostly in showcasing, you know, showcasing the capability in a way. Yeah. So so variety is is something that appeals to you. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. And, and is that why you decided to leave academia then? Uh, that's an interesting story. So when it's actually the story of how I met uh, my wife. So my professor, who is a fascinating character, he looks like Einstein. And uh, he did his PhD in, in, in Berkeley in the 60s. Uh, he is kind of completely alternative, kind of like hippie-ish. But, you know, a med professor. Anyway, he befriended this... McKinsey director from Stuttgart office, and they together were doing a lot of study. We became really good friends. They were connected around a similar approach to work and completely. So they they would do joint projects together and consult companies. And this McKinsey guy, he came in, and so they jointly gave a series of seminars each year about the application of economics to the real world, so to speak. So um, our professor would bring uh, the theory and the McKinsey guy would bring real world problems. And I think there might have even been like some of the, I don't know, but there might have been some McKinsey clients who allowed uh, their stuff to be used in this context. Uh, we would break up into teams and we would solve uh, problems. And for me, that was the first time where I went, ooh, economics is not just for government and setting policy. There's actually application to business. Like, that's exciting. And my wife and I, um, at that time, we, we didn't know each other, but we ended up doing a project um, on the uh, pricing in the chocolate market. So we needed to do a lot of tasting in the chocolate of, uh, of chocolates. Tough gig. Yeah, it's a ter terrible gig. Like we were, you know, we were forced to sit at a cafe for several hours drinking tea and tasting different chocolate. It was it was horror. Um, we're, we wrote a paper and started dating afterwards. So that was, interestingly enough, like if you want to know more, we found one brand 
which we thought was uh, underpriced in the market. Like it had the quality of of the top of the top top, like Valrhona and uh, Michel Clouzel. So these are considered uh, basically the Rolls Royce of the of the um, premium chocolates. And this brand uh, Bernard Castellan at at that time it was it was a ten year entrant, but you know compared to like hundreds of years maybe for others. Uh, they were relatively new. And we thought they were underpriced. Within several months after we completed the project, they increased their prices significantly. Now, I'm not saying <laughs> that the McKinsey guy actually gave them a call. I'm saying that. <laughs> but I'm also not not saying that, right? I mean, I have no idea, but but it's just we thought, oh, they're underpriced and they've been around for a decade and uh, then they increase the prices. This is interesting. I'm going to claim that as a win. Yeah. And so is that so anyone who's who's unfamiliar with what type of problems you would be solving in those instances, and that includes me, can you give me any other examples of types of business problems that you would work on with McKinsey and your professor? Other people got like a much more serious projects allocated, like uh, the pricing for um, Deutsche Bahn, the railway, and you needed to figure out who are the competitors, like what what market what market is it in, right, and uh, who are the competitors, and uh, how are those priced, and you know, like you would think about the journey that people are taking. Now, Germany, I think it's a bit like like England. Germany is. Um, crisscrossed with railways and you would quite often it's also very it's not really concentrated in in terms of living but you would have you would have areas which like Ruhrgebiet uh, which um, uh, Dusseldorf and Köln I think are sort of in there so it's an area of where 20 million people live but they live in all sorts of villages but the villages go kind of from one to the other and from one to the other and so uh, the train network is amazing so if you think about like my wife, uh, she uh, worked in Frankfurt while we were living in um, at Mannheim in Mannheim, and every day she would go to Frankfurt and uh, have, having a train, just high speed train covering like 150 kilometers. It's absolutely not a problem. Anyway, I don't know why I talk about this. So, but pricing in in that, so that that would be actually pricing in any market that would be an obvious one. Uh, the opening of uh, stores, and by the way, I'm just speaking like purely about the game theory applications and type of problems where we you know which we would we would approach so launch of a new product um, customer retention i guess you have to think a little bit about the interaction maybe it's not exactly uh, game theoretic but it could be remuneration inside the company Anyway, go on. I'm just mindful of people thinking that you just sat around eating chocolate, but <laughs> which <laughs> wouldn't that be? A gig? Um, and then, so let's talk about making better decisions then. And, and you can obviously lead this into game theory, etc., if you'd like to. But what is it you love most about helping people make better decisions? So much so that you've dedicated, you know, your life to it. So obviously, I studied economics, and uh, kind of, I was always more fascinated by about reconstructing the human behavior right from the ground up in partly is because i'm driven to understand what's going on so this is one of my kind of i'm really curious about why things happen so for me economics is not about macro trends and uh, you know interest rates and that sort of stuff like growth i don't actually i don't do macro that that well 
So when it comes to like what's economics about? Well, it's a study of people making decisions about things like work and leisure or leisure, uh, consumption and savings, money. Ultimately, it's because we don't live alone. It's a, it's a study of uh, people interacting with each other in some form of market. And by the way, if you think uh, like chocolates was cool, um, I think Gary Becker uh, wrote... I believe he won a Nobel Prize. Anyway, he was one of the Chicago School economists. Uh, he wrote papers about uh, the dating market. So this is, you know, in particular market for uh, yeah marriage. And so yeah, like there, there are people <laughs> applying economic theory to all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. You know, what are the elements of decision making? Because I wanted to know, like, okay, how do people how do people make decisions about those concepts? So you've got obviously a decision making apparatus. Uh, and we now understand that it isn't your brain, or at least it's uh, you know it's not your conscious brain most of the time. Um, it's your emotions, it's the context in which you're making them, your environment, uh, which um, which in turn contains the rules of what kind of decisions you can make, uh, so what's available to you, and you know because we're guided about like not everything goes. Uh, obviously, in business, like there are regulations that that you can't break, so there are particular rules around you know which which guide our actions and our decisions, and also who you're interacting with. And finally, it's uh, the the bit where the uncertainty comes in. It's uh, uh, all the knowledge that you have about the rules, about what others can do, about what others are doing, uh, and also the knowledge about others' knowledge, right? And so everything that I just said is a bit theoretic and a bit esoteric, okay? So, but in terms of what attracted me personally to this, that that's that's it. It's trying to understand how things work. Now, if I were to make a case for why others should be interested, uh, it's it's kind of this. So decision-making leads to actions, and actions lead to results, right? So you have this thing, it says there's a decision, action, result. And working backwards, if you want better results, you want to know what kind of actions uh, you need to take and what kind of actions others would be taking, because we're talking about uh, in interactive uh, decisions. And therefore, then you need to think about, you know, what kind of decisions we need to take in order to lead to actions, in order to lead to better results. So that's, I hope that's less theoretical and a bit more to the point. Yeah, no, it all makes sense. And, and actually, I was listening to a couple of your episodes this week. And what is interesting to me with my, you know, agency hat on is how much overlap there is to what we do from a from a marketing strategy sense. But in the same token, what you talk about, and I think what you focus on, is what I recall uh, Mark Ritson referring to as, uh, I think the way he talked about it is that strategy is kind of that game of chess, but the business strategy and everything else that it entails in terms of mitigating risk is almost like the game that's going on under the table and understanding the different contexts of different departments, etc., to navigate risk is, you know, an entirely different challenge in many ways. Absolutely. So chess is the analogy for uh, for strategy. I think we would we both agree because we hang around the same group of people on on Twitter. So it's been that uh, concept around what is that famous chess thing on Netflix that came out 
was it last year? Queen's Gambit. That's it. Yeah. Right. So some people were writing that uh, oh, you should study chess too. Uh, there are some elements, but what makes chess totally boring is um, that uh, it, it's visible. Right. Uh, you know literally everything there is to know and you know what the other person knows and it's unambiguous you because you see what they're seeing the knight the knight can't suddenly move diagonally exactly and and it doesn't you know a different uh, you know a rook doesn't all of a sudden just materialize on the you know on a particular square where there wasn't one uh, game theory goes back to john von neumann and i don't know if you or the audience know about who john von neumann was assume i know nothing Okay, Doctor Strange Love, or why, uh, or how I learned to love the the atom bomb, with um, Peter Sellers. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so John von Neumann was the uh, inspiration for the Peter Sellers character. John von Neumann is is one of the last brilliant polymaths. Uh, so he had, I think, he was one of the progenitors of the ergodic theory. He did a lot of stuff in myth- in mathematics like a lot of stuff in both theoretical and applied mathematics. He uh, contributed seminal papers to theoretical and applied physics. He worked on the hydrogen bomb. He was the consultant to the United States government uh, on uh, uh, national security. And while working on the hydrogen bomb, uh, he just uh, kind of developed game theory as, uh, as a hobby. And... The reason why he wanted, so he didn't like games. He didn't like chess because he thought it's computationally computable, like you could solve it. And that was not interesting to him because there was no no uncertainty. Uh, He didn't like games of chance because it's just pure chance. It's just pure luck. So he didn't like that either. And uh, he he, uh, loved poker. Because he said that poker, well, poker has the information that only one person knows and the information that both know. And the the rest is the probabilistic computations. So, and he thought that if he could solve poker, he would be able to solve the, the, the problem of the nuclear holocaust. Uh, he never solved pro- poker. Uh, it was, it's, it's still unsolvable, <laughs> but he did develop game theory because of that. Now, this story, this little anecdote, I mean, obviously, it's, it's about John von Neumann. Uh, the way that I described it comes from the Knowledge Project episode 89 with Maria Konnikova, who was uh, like any Duke. She was uh, one of, she's got a PhD in psychology, and she became a professional poker player and won uh, things. But what got her into poker is somebody nudged her into the uh, John von Neumann example. And she was like, oh, John von Neumann was smart and he likes poker. So maybe maybe there is something towards poker. So I think I kind of agree. It's, you know, poker is a better analogy for for life because of that there is skill, but there is also luck and there is a counterbalance of the two. Yeah, and I think that's a really good example, certainly when you compare it to chess. I now wish we'd asked you poker or chess in the quick fires. Um, so what are the common problems that you see in business when it comes to making better decisions around uncertainty you've decided to launch business games which is a series we referenced in your intro so maybe you can explain to our audience who may not have heard of it what that is i had this joke i didn't workshop the joke but uh you know there's (laughs) the usual founder bs story like i was observing a sunset once and this farmer passed and he sighed deeply and and I asked, what's wrong? And he sighed again and replied, oh, young man, I'm just so overwhelmed with uncertainty. How can I make better decisions? And that 
was where I came. Yeah, you know, it's you know that's that's obviously <laughs> rubbish. But uh, <laughs> uh, th- there are a couple of uh, things. While we were consult, I mean, first of all, I wanted to be to be a professor, right? So actually, you know, taught at at the graduate level. So that was always in me, and uh, then I switched to the uh, to the consulting. But I was always trying to coach. Uh, one uh, client executive asked me once to coach him while he was doing uh, his executive MBA uh, in some things, in particular in statistics. And by the time I figured out what and how they were teaching, uh, like I was able to help him because I thought I can do this better. And and that was. Uh, the stats module and the data module is is kind of is a tro- it's like an appendage nobody really connects it to anything and there are, it's taught by like stats professors who don't really see real world and it's just it's too easy anyway at least it was then so i thought okay i can do it better and we also designed a course for the client uh for the client's uh team some mid, mid management pricing team uh to uh, teach them the basics of game theory. And so that was the genesis. But, uh, you know, then COVID basically allowed me time to to do this. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it now. Because if not now, I might might not get, get to it. Uh, so things that I wanted to get out of it, right, at the very minimum, is I'm trying to learn new skills and improve myself, okay? So that's that's already a win. What was it? So who was it for? Sort of guided by... My background, I thought executive education, and I looked around. Obviously, you know, follow a lot of recent stuff because I'm, I'm a student. Uh, I, I believe I just by luck I went into his last in person, last ever in person Melbourne Business School course. So I've done that uh, for a week on the brand management. I think he switched to mini MBA straight after that. Anyway, so he is—he was talking on podcasts like, as enough of the kind of chat show format, which is true. I mean, if I were starting before, that would be the format. But now, uh, the I can't compete with the more established ones. So a kind of guide is like, what is out there and what can I do differently? And so I had this learning idea, and I thought, how can I deliver that? Because I'm also fascinated about podcasts as a form, and I thought, okay. What if I deliver effectively an audio course in a podcast format uh, and we talk about um, making better decisions? Business games obviously refers to game theory. So I thought, you know, and it's applications for business. And, and I thought it's uh, it's a cool name, doesn't exist. I started consuming a lot of a lot of courses of my own like for my own professional development. So Ritson is part of it, Institute of Directors and so on. So there were there are a lot of things that is out there. But I found the way that, maybe it's just me, but I couldn't find a good strategy course. And because I want to go to the first principles, so to speak, I am thinking, okay, can I do strategy? Well, let's do strategic thinking because the, if, you, if you develop your thinking, you can then build strategy. So, and I couldn't find a good strategic thinking course either. Um, and I thought, okay, let's, let's, let's try to, so that became the focus and so let's, let's try to build something. Your second season focused on business experiments. What, what is business experimentation? Can you explain what that actually means to our listeners? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the, and it's, that was one of the key questions that, that we started with because I was looking, uh, I mean, first of all, I was thinking, okay, what should I do? And I came across a bunch of articles and it looked like there was an increased 
a number of articles about business experimentation but they were all tech focused you know it's like oh you know whatever google runs ten thousand experiments a year and why would um, senior managers debate about the color of the background and it's like you're right why would they i don't know it's just why is this a thing like that's an obvious uh, that's an obvious point but is it tech like did we did business people never experiment and all of a sudden they're experimenting because there are all these platforms like that doesn't make sense um you know, like surely anybody who ever started a company is basically an experiment, right? And this is how you iterate and find out what uh, what resonates. So actually, that was one of the one of the things. And I thought, okay, uh, business games is an ex- is experimental in and of itself. I don't know whether it survives. Let's run something that's self contained and addresses this one thing. And it seems like it's a hot topic. Okay, so. What is what's an experimental approach? Uh, the more I started, uh, you know, getting into that, uh, I've done a lot of uh, my own research. Like I will, rec- um, the the lit review episode is not up, but it's coming up. So basically, what's an experimental approach? It requires first and foremost, it requires a hypothesis. So it requires a testable, falsifiable hypothesis. So what does it mean? Uh, first of all, testability has two things. One is falsifiability and the other is practical feasibility. That That is to say that you need to be able to find counterexamples to the hypothesis that are logically possible. Because if, if it's, uh, you know, like gravity right now, that's not a hypothesis. We have a gravity, you can measure it, right? It's not really like you can't find on the surface of the Earth a counterexample to gravity. It doesn't make sense. The... Um, and the idea behind that is if you are not learning that's not an experiment right it's it's not if you cannot learn so if you cannot fail you cannot learn because then it's a belief and if you cannot learn that's not an experiment so you're not experimenting you're implementing but before you can implement like what are you implementing do you put all the proverbial eggs in one basket well you probably shouldn't um, and you know, in most decisions, you can actually find out what is true and what is not true, and then, and then, practical feasibility is obviously you need to be able to to repeat that again. I mean, in in the scientific sense, like other people should be able to run your experiment because if you run an experiment and can never be replicated, this again, that's not really an experiment. Um, so these are the key elements of experimentation. Now, for business, you got a couple of other things that are that are relevant. You need to have structured approach to learning. Experimentation is or should never be one off. In fact, it's less risky to run many experiments than it is to run one. Because by definition, if you can't false like if you can't disprove it, you're not learning anything. So if you run one experiment and you just or one hypothesis, right? You test it and it proves to be false. Well, okay, that's great. That's learning. You need another hypothesis. You need to 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 go and iterate, right? Or you need to run several experiments at the same time. If you're only running one, you don't, you know, suppose you disprove a hypothesis because you can never prove a hypothesis other. That's that's the thing. We can never in statistics, like it's not possible to prove anything. It's only possible to fail to disprove something. So that's so that's key. Uh, so you need a structured process of incorporating learning into your further testing 
you should actually be able to act on the evidence. So that's the other bit about the business experimentation where like don't do it if you're not going to act on it, right? If if there are certain things that and there could be certain there could be certain things where you know, you could run something and uh, you might be able to screw your most loyal customers and it might be profitable at least in the short run, but you decided that that's not fitting into your overall strategy and so you make other you know, you make choices outside of the of the experimentations. Like, okay, cool, then don't test that, right? Because you're not going to be you're not going to be incorporating that particular learning into into the thing. So basically, I found so there are more. You know, we we get deeper into it, um, but these are the key points. So hypothesis first and foremost, and then iterative kind of continuous learning and having a structured process around that. So that's uh, business experimentation in a nutshell. You mentioned um, about Google and how many experiments they typically run. It would be interesting to know your thoughts on how much of that is part of their historic strategy and how much of it, as I think it's probably increased in part, is down to their surplus of resource. Because obviously, talking about taking any risks as a business, there is a understandable kind of risk mitigation that you'll come up against in order to approve any type of experimentation. but. Google not only would have had numerous successes to demonstrate the value of doing what they do. However, I wonder how easy it would have been to even get started if they hadn't already got a, you know, a monstrously profitable business. Uh, that's a very good point. I don't, you know, Ritson has this quote and I actually use it for one of the episodes is that you've, you, your, your portable toilet business has nothing to learn from Steve Jobs. I think it's very, it's, it's, that's why I don't, you know, I like, using visible brands and cases to discuss something but let's face it we, we can't learn from google exactly for that reason it's fucking google you know yeah. um, what i would yeah, say so- is is that i would push back a little bit on i mean a you need you need um uh, nothing comes for free right i mean if it were free like everybody would be doing it uh, experimentation can be costly uh in terms of just having resources you know like i for example, I yeah, basically I know how to code, and I would be able to to code A/B testing and la di da di da. I don't have time for that, so I don't really experiment that much. You know, just the website is a website, and and that's it. And people will go and and I will you know test one version of the website for like maybe six months to get the longer term thing, and and that's the extent of my ability because uh, you know we we are just me and my wife doing this. Uh, Google obviously can do can do more, and it's like yeah, you need resources for that, absolutely. Um, but quite often not doing anything is, is, you know, carries its own risk because you are not finding anything new. Um, so Rory talks about bees and he says, uh, you know, the, about 20% of the bees don't follow the waggle dance. They just shoot off at random, uh, because if you find one source of pollen, and you send all your bees there uh, and you exhaust that source of pollen and you don't find anything else. So if you're not searching while you're exploiting, so, he, you know, he talks about the, uh, on our episode, the, um, about the explore-exploit trade-off. So if you're not searching, if you're not exploring, you, you can, there are limits to what you can explore. At some stage, you, you run out of it and then you're not prepared. So I would claim that while you shouldn't just you know invest everything into experimentation it's just not every as, as we discussed not every decision can be subject to experimentation at the same time you also can't ignore that exploratory work because at some stage 
you get surprised, you know, COVID comes along, like there is a disruption of some kind. And that's a very visible worldwide disruption. But there are other disruptions in, you know, more local and could be just to your, you know, you you have one client. Uh, and like we had a client for eight years, right? It was amazing because we like, we didn't even look for work. Work found us. It was a large corporate and uh, we worked in different business units. Uh, we would deliver something and then that person would like what we do and would talk to his colleague in another business unit. And then we would be approached and do something for another business unit. Well, that's great. What happens when that relationship goes? Well, it goes. So, uh, you know, and, and it's like you, 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 you can't just sign another client like that in our case. So, you know, we're seeing it and, and I, and I knew about it. Right. So again, that, that was, that was a conscious decision because of the lack of resources. So I didn't really need to convince myself that, oh, I need to go and uh, sign sign another client. But I just never, because we were so busy kind of implementing the projects for this client, is that we didn't really, so we were aware of that possibility and we just took that as a risk. Well, that's fine. That's a conscious decision. You know, but but uh, be aware that it's, you are totally right. Okay, so I will push back on Google with one thing is that I think they started off with this idea of giving people 20% slack, uh, you know, so you work for four days and then the fifth day you do whatever you like. Uh, from the very beginning. Now, obviously, what does it mean from the very beginning? By that time, they they already had some funding, right? But but I would even say they started like that, uh, consciously. In fact, over time, I believe they actually removed that twenty percent. But but they started off like that, and and there were things that came out of it. Of course, you could also claim like, what did Google really invent outside of search? And may, maybe like there are people who go maybe not much, uh, but but they were able to then acquire some other companies. Whatever. Anyway, that's why Google is 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 a terrible example. But yeah, back to your point. Yes, it's difficult to prove to people the value of one particular experiment. That's why I say that it's actually more costly to run one, because ultimately, like it, it, by definition, if you're not if it's not able to fail, you're not learning anything, but it's the learning that's important. So effectively, you, which is a fundamental problem of many managers, especially in corporates, but maybe also running their own companies, don't understand the point of experimentation because they want an ROI on that project. And it's like, it cannot exist by definition. One-off experimentation, testing why and hypothesis should fail. If it doesn't fail, you're not learning anything. Yeah, no, you're completely right. It's a really good point as well. You used the word Slack earlier when you were talking about that, yeah. you know, that 20% or that one day for Google employees. But you're right. It's just that tolerance as much as anything, isn't it? To allow that play and allow that failure because you can't, um, going back to your honeybee stories, I've always loved that story. And I love the fact that for years it, it apparently stumped evolutionary theorists who expected <laughs> them to be completely, you know, compliant. Yeah. But again, going back, like we mentioned, um, we were talking about Rory before the show, but Rory will always say you should test counterintuitive things. Yes. And so counterintuitive things are exactly the opposite of what a lot of business managers and owners would probably want because they want to just, you know, be able to scale things and guarantee that the exactly. same things will happen when they scale it. And as you know, that's just not possible. And again, back to back to game theory, because they're playing a different game. They're not playing a game uh, where we do stuff. This is This is where, like, 
I think economics or the traditional economics uh, is, is wrong. Because, well, no, no, that's not true. There is an agency uh, theory. No, no, no. It's actually no. So I, com- I completely take that back. So uh, traditional economists, or at least game theorists, applied game theorists, have have known uh, this problem for a long time. The alignment of your own incentives as a as an employee, and like every manager is an employee, right? I mean, even the CEO is is, is employed by the board and has to re- report to somebody because it could lose the job. Your incentives are to keep your job. Your incentives are not to improve the overall health of the company. If If they happen to coincide, well, that's great. It's like the incentives of the politicians are to be re-elected next time. It's not to institute meaningful change for the benefit of the country. So they're playing completely different games. And that's that's why it's, you know, there's stuff that makes sense from the point of view of a company. Even Rory's point about test things that don't make sense, that statement in and of itself makes a lot of sense. But nobody, you know, why do people not do it? Because everybody's scared for their job. Can I do just one thing about why is uncertainty a thing, like what people get wrong about uncertainty? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. First of all, misunderstanding the types of uncertainty. And uh, you, you, you could use that within the complexity theory about the complex versus complicated stuff. You could also, uh, there, there, are, there are two types of uncertainty uh, I found and called epistemic and aleatory. Epistemic comes from the Greek word for knowledge and that basically... Uh, reflects the sentiment of if I only had more data, I would be able to compute stuff. Uh, so you can decrease that level with more knowledge, that uncertainty. Aleatory uh, comes from Latin for the role of the dice, and that reflects the inherent uncertainty of inherent randomness of phenomena. You cannot reduce that uncertainty. And so, you know, we talked about um, managers just now. So it, this, this story should be familiar to a lot of people because it's a, it's a uh, kind of amalgam of, of many real-life stories. So a senior manager wants to evaluate a project, right, and uh, charges his or her underlings to come up with the ROI. And then realizing that there is uncertainty but no current data, an analyst or a vendor would recommend investing in a big data solution, right? They would say, well, if we, you know, data is the new oil and all of that, and if we only have more data and can analyze it, we'll decrease that uncertainty. Okay, typically, millions of dollars and years of investment later, there's still uncertainty. Nobody was able to reduce it. And that's where people think that they're living in that epistemic uncertainty world, which, well, if only we had more data, we would be able to to know more when in fact they're they're living in a completely just just in a random world where random stuff happens, and you cannot reduce that. So I think fundamentally one issue, the the one really big issue is that people misunderstand the type of uncertainty that they're dealing with, and then there are also a lot of which is related. So why did why did they want more information to start with? Because people also, and especially managers, uh, no, but just generally people as well, we overvalue the the knowledge in a way. We really think in binary terms, like either I know or I don't know. And if I don't know, oh my God, I need to know. There's nothing in between. Most world, Most of the world lives in between. You cannot measure everything. But you've also met people who go, especially creatives, uh, I, I, I found, because when I, when I talk to them about, uh, you know, you can measure marketing effectiveness, they go, no, 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 you can't. 
uh, because it's you know lots of different things. Like that's true. There are a lot of different things happening, and and you will never be able to hundred percent know. But that's not the point. If you go from thirty percent knowledge to sixty percent knowledge of some arbitrary percentage, right? You've just doubled your amount of knowledge. You're still you're still around the middle, but you've just doubled. So that to me is important. So we need to move away from these binary classifications of I know or I don't know. If I don't know, I cannot make a decision. And if I know, I must know with certainty. Neither of those extremes is helpful. Anyway, that's that's uh, that's it about that. Well, that, that reminds me of, um, again, going back to Mark Ritson, he talks about the importance of having a prayer prayer of uncertainty, which is just kind of allowing yourself not to have perfect knowledge because as yeah. you've just so well articulated, yeah. it's just not even possible. And some is better than none. In fact, we say that regularly with clients who... Um, might understandably balk at the cost of doing some, you know, really thorough, proper research sometimes, mm-hmm. whether it's market, market or customer research. But, but, but the same rules apply. Some knowledge is better than none. Exactly. And you can never have all knowledge. So some is better than none and, and the perfection is the enemy of good, right? So, you know, at some stage, some is good enough. And, and uh, yeah, it's those extremes. It, it's just avoid extremes. I mean, that's, that's probably one of the, one of the takeaways. Well, another one of um, our mutual friends and someone that's been on both our shows, JP. Yeah. I, I once tweeted, only the Sith deal in absolutes. <laughs> yes. And the, the worry about absolutes. And then JP helpfully said, yes, but that in itself is an absolute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I so remember... I called him a prick and moved on. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that tweet. He also went on to say that it means that uh, whoever said that, which I, I believe was Obi-Wan, right, might himself be a Sith. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You can, you can never know. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Yeah. Uh, but we've got two. I'm going to do them the other way around, actually, because we've got one from uh, from Mark in Edinburgh. And I wanted to talk to you about this earlier, so I'm pleased you sent this in. Mark says, could you tell us a bit about your stand-up comedy experience? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, oh, I, I guess it was my wife who nudged me to this. Like She found the course. And uh, interestingly enough, so we've got we've got one guy who runs this comedy club, and it's a dedicated comedy club uh, in Auckland. And he is so generous towards the the comedy scene that uh, you know you can basically there's a couple of tiny little uh, very dodgy but very cool very cool places that you could kind of almost get for free and just practice stand up there. And apparently, because uh, one of our teachers on the course is is from New York, and he started uh, in in the New York scene, he says in New York, if you do open mic, like you have to pay. So there's actually like people, you know, figured out that uh, like there's not so much demand uh, that you have to even if you want to test some material, like if you are starting out, you have to pay to be able to perform. And in Auckland, apparently, so the guy was telling us that that we're so lucky because we, we don't have to. We can just show up. Anyway, so my wife found this this uh, course, and she said, you've been talking about, you know, liking stand-up for a long time. I mean, we're watching all the Netflix uh, shows and stuff. It's like, why don't you go and do it? And I was a bit apprehensive at first. I was like, because uh, we discussed that, right? If If you're doing something, even though, you know, I gave lectures and I presented to... Uh, to the C-suite and to 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 the board uh, as part of my consulting uh, career, it's just showing up in front of strangers, holding up a mic and trying to be funny. You know, this is just very, uh, it's very disconcerting. But what the hell? 
<laughs> That's perfectly cued. For some inexplicable reason, I have an alarm on for the time that I never get up at anyway. So I, I, this is just, just bizarre. It, it might have been my late night, uh, late, late night shenanigans, just pressing buttons. Hey, Siri, surprise me tomorrow, okay? <laughs> yeah, some chaos theory there at play. So, uh, so anyway, I did this course. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic, amazing, completely eye-opening about, you know, what comedy is and what it isn't. It's, it's just incredible. Nice. And and how did your how many gigs did you do? Did you do a proper gig? I, I did a proper gig, yes. So uh we had to as part of the core, like you pay money and then you have to perform to a paying audience. Uh the payment doesn't go to you. Uh it it goes to basically, you know, hiring the venue because it's just like a, a paying gig, it's a small one. And uh not all the members of the paying audience were friends and family, you know, they're just some random people. Uh, coming in from the street and just like, oh, there is an event. So we we needed to prepare a five minute stand up set, and it was about nineteen of us, and there were two shows back to back to back scheduled. So and we had a professional uh, MC, so his himself a stand up and 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 an MC. You want some takeaways? I think there are some takeaways. Yeah, for yeah, this. yeah. Go on. Okay, cool. So first thing, growth mindset and doing the work. Yeah. It's not about how funny you are. It's about showing up and sucking a little less each time. Like you will suck. Everybody sucks. Professional stand-ups suck. The if if you hear people for the first time doing you know working out material, that's that's just that's a lot of sucking. So what goes into the making a Netflix special, which I think is most people's uh, understanding of stand-up, that's a polished set. Sometimes years in the making. Yeah. They. So the very the, the second part is the iteration and experimentation. Okay, so you you craft a joke, you test it, you get feedback. People laugh or they don't. You rewrite it, you test it again, you get another feedback, and you keep iterating. It, it it's experimental in nature. This this is uh that's that's just how, you know it's like the process of it on the on the other side. If you think about it, is incredibly boring. Um, mm. like you, you tell people and, you know, like for me, I, I geeked out about it. It's like, this is awesome. I can do this. And that was actually the whole point of the, of the course. Uh, but I think some people would go like, oh, there's no magic because it's not just, you know, some really talented, funny person just woke up and decided to do a Netflix special and everybody's laughing. It's like, that's not how it works, but I love it because that's, that's, you know, life doesn't work that way either. And the, the, uh, the other part, which I think is where I think stand-up comics, uh, by and large, they're, they're probably better marketers than the marketers in the sense that they are absolutely 100% customer-centric and customer-obsessed, right? You need to take yourself out of the equation completely. Like you think the joke works, but the audience doesn't laugh, you get that feedback immediately and you just have to get over yourself and, and just... Uh, uh, like Larry David, of all people, right? Wasn't a really good stand-up comic. Uh, he was the stand-up stand-up uh, because all the stand-ups loved him. It was really, really funny. But he would bomb with the audience. And I, and I believe like at one show, he told a joke. Audience didn't laugh. And he basically said, you suck. And he dropped the microphone and just walked away. <laughs> That's, you know, the, the tip. Typically, uh, the the stand-ups are a bit more thick-skinned than that. And, and there's a lot of, like, you really take yourself out of the equation. You just work on the stuff that makes your 
paying. And that's why the paying stuff at the end of the course was so important because our teachers told us you need to experience that. You cannot just, you know, perform to your friends. Like you need to know what it's like to be a, uh, and this is where professionalism comes in. It's like you need to know that there are people on the other side who paid money and they want a good time and you need to give them a good time. So I think that's that's uh, I also think that's that's honest in a way that that you you know you you get that feedback and you're either you know it either works or it doesn't but then you do it better next time you do a little bit better next time. So anyway, I think these are the the three takeaways. Growth mindset, iteration and take yourself out of the equation. You, you it's unlikely you'll know this unless you've listened to every call to action episode because I think it's come up at least once before but we used to as an agency always send our new hires on uh, stand up comedy courses. Wow. And we haven't cool. done it since the pandemic but just as a like a, even like a yeah. one or two day uh, course just because I couldn't agree more with your point that lots of comedians are going to be better marketers than marketers because there's something in the art of of, of that type of wit and communication that's required alongside the need to put together a, a great entertaining presentation, which in itself yeah. is, uh, you know, is easier said than done. It's just so, so beneficial. And I think more business people should give it a go. Not that it's not terrifying at the same time. Yeah, but but the other thing, you know, if, if, you, if you're not doing it, back to our... Uh, earlier point if you're not learning it's like what are you doing you know and and if you're not terrified then you're not learning because then, then, learning, you, yeah. then you know right i mean it's like exactly. knowledge knowledge is not terrifying discovering new stuff is all or the the possibility of quote-unquote failure but actually in that failure there is there is success because you know a little bit more oh that's brilliant that you were doing that um, that that is so cool yeah no it was, it was great who's who's your favorite stand-up comedian before we move on uh, well, growing up, it was Seinfeld. Um, currently, I'm I'm totally in love with uh, Hannah Gadsby's Douglas set. So not the Nanette set. I find Nanette really heavy. I mean, it's it's good, but it's kind of heavy. But her Douglas, her follow up set, is just it's so brilliant, beautifully crafted. It's 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 like a true master at work. I'm just because I'm looking at everything now from the point of view of crafting jokes. So I'm not even like some jokes I find rude or you know, but I appreciating how they got to that point. It's like oh they tried this here and they tried that so i'm actually looking at it from uh, now with with that appreciation as i think you know uh, your employees would also appreciate so hannah gadsby's douglas said like and then i like some new guys uh, like um and gals uh taylor tomlinson uh nate bargatze from uh they're from the u.s uh daniel sloss he's scottish and I like the three of them are completely different i like them for completely different reasons but but those three would be would be popping up in my head. Nice one. Um, uh, question two is from Sam from Cardiff, who asks, what is the most valuable thing that you have learned from one of your guests so far? I have several. So first of all, this this whole point of start with the hypothesis. Um, Melissa talks a lot about it uh, on, on our episode. And uh, basically her quote, a lot of people say they're learning from experimenting, but they're actually just doing random stuff. So because they either have no hypothesis or they have no process of learning. So it's just trying things out is is valuable, but it's not experimenting. You could you could try something, it might not work. That's not experimenting. You need to it needs to be a much more conscious effort about you set a hypothesis and you do that. So um uh, Melissa talking about it in the context of um of uh, startups, boardrooms, uh, but also just just generally business. 
uh, a couple of things. Yeah, beware of the extremes. That's the other part. And I'm going to summarize maybe a couple that, that are coming from this whole thing. And I, I might not be able to place all of them to particular people, people who are in technology. None of them talk about technology. Everybody talks about humans. It's all about humans all the time. So, but even more precisely, I think it's less about individual humans and more about groups of humans over time. So it's more anthropology and less psychology. It's more foundation and less empire. And the final thing is golden rule sucks, right? It's actually your worst enemy if you want to make good strategic decisions, uh, especially the positive, uh, the positive form, which says treat others as you would like others to treat you. This is really terrible. It's not empathetic. You're not actually putting yourself in the shoes of, of the others. You're not thinking from their point of view. You're thinking from your point of view. So it's very, it's very selfish. Actually, a much better way is you, you, should, uh, you should not ask, what would I do in their shoes? You should ask, what would they do in their shoes? So you really need to put yourself into the frame of mind of your counterpart, be it your customer or your competitor uh, or your teammate even, right? Or when you're negotiating, because it's another application of game theory is negotiations. Actually, anything with interaction, because game theory, we didn't touch upon game theory, what it is, but ultimately it's a study of interactive decision-making. So Kahneman and the original uh, kind of psychology-driven um, uh, behavioral economics is all about individual decision-making. How do individuals behave under uncertainty? but most of it is individual. Game theory is all about interactive decision-making. So you've got some rules of the game, you've got, uh, you've got uh, your counterpart, whoever that is. As I say, it could be your teammate, it could be uh, the negotiating party, it could be your customers, it could be your competitors, it could be a regulator for, for regulated industries. And they have their knowledge and you have your knowledge and you don't know what they know. So there is a lot of uncertainty around that. Uh, and they want to do stuff, but they want to do stuff from their point of view, with their culture, their emotions, their moral settings, their you know their knowledge, their education. It's them who are making their decisions, and you're making your decisions. But you have to put yourself into their sh not put yourself into their shoes, but you really have to get into their head in a way, and ask the question of what what are they doing? How are they feeling? And so that's that's another takeaway. And we do, incidentally, like we... And Melissa's episode is really good, by the way. Um, the So we discussed that part. So yeah, golden rule is, is your worst enemy. And uh, there, there's a better rule, which is really treat others like they want, they, like they need to be treated. Yeah. So put yourself into the... Really immerse yourself and think from the other person's point of view. Good stuff. Good answer. Uh, so the final part of the interview then, Andre, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? I always waited to know stuff before I could talk about it or promote myself. Uh, but it's a bit like having an awesome product with no marketing, right? And then wondering, like, why is nobody buying it? Because you haven't told anybody about it. And so... I, my advice would be to definitely prioritize the product, but also allocate a lot of time to, you know, to talk about it because just, just doing the, just being comfortable until you know something 
like sometimes like we discussed it's like it's it's that that fallacy of you know i don't know versus i know and there's nothing in between like you should work in yeah. between and so so that relates immediately to that so i guess the career advice would be i mean it's a generally good advice uh it's, it's a generic one but the let's say career advice if i were to talk to myself i would say go and uh like networking networking is a funny thing done properly it bears fruit like 10 years from now but but it's difficult to know what what done properly means like be curious and invest in talking about stuff you also learn through that because the more people you talk to just develop a network uh while definitely still keeping a uh, you know a focus on doing the work and kind of learning so so you you can't be all talk and nothing so you can't like you know I, I know for a fact that a lot of people on your podcast, you know, we like trashing Gary Vee and, and I think he is, to me, you know, like that's all talk and not really, I mean, some of it is right just, just, just by pure magic because, you know, just by pure randomness, he says a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, some of it makes sense, but it's just, yeah. just a lot of self-promotion and I, I don't like that. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff getting sprayed about. Awesome. Um, if you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why? So I guess that can, I mean, we're quite flexible there in terms of industry, but I would suggest it's, you know, just general kind of business activities. Yeah. Yeah. The obsession with wanting certainty, right? I mean, I'd say that, wouldn't I, right? <laughs> no, that's a good answer, though. And I think the trouble is that that's going to exist everywhere, like inside and outside of business, isn't it? I mean, human beings want certainty. We seek it. Exactly, because we, you know, because ultimately uncertainty, but like that's that's the thing about we know that we evolved in a space which we don't live in, right? I mean, and it took us many thousands of years to actually get to that point. But, you know, we evolved in the savannah where if something rustles, you know, in, in, if the grass rustles, you run away. Like you don't really investigate and you don't like, oh, I'm going to take my chance. It's like, no, those people don't survive. So you, you run away. And there's a lot of like, you know, running away uh, stuff built into us. We That's why we run from uncertainty. It's a bit like craving sugar, right? I mean, we evolved to crave sugar because there, there was not enough of it around. And so we didn't never really built in the, the top boundary. It's like we know that we need some sugar and we want it. Uh, and now we have a lot of it and it's free and we're just eating. And, you know, I put on a lot of weight during the <laughs> during the lockdown. And uh, that's, again, it takes effort to actually correct some of those built-in behaviors. But, yeah, that's uh, that's one thing. Yeah. At the, at the risk of opening a box that should never be opened on an interview – do you do you consider religion to be a way of humans trying to create a false certainty? Yes, but also but also myths and uh, you know and and Marvel Cinematic Universe and uh, and 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 right and clubs. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean it's just part of us. I'm really um, religion is an interesting one. Uh, I I'm probably agnostic. I am. I am. I. I don't think it should. Yeah. I. I used to believe very, uh, uh very kind of openly, and uh, that that it should not be organized in a way like it shouldn't be run as a corporate because the spirituality is an individual uh, thing. It's not a. But there's also a lot of stuff to be said for belonging to a group. So I know somebody who moved from uh, Italy to Singapore. 
And I don't think they're awfully religious, but but you know they are Catholic. And so what they did is they um, uh, found uh, a, a Catholic church in Singapore, and and that immediately helped them by. And I know that that's not the only example. I also know South Africans who moved to New Zealand. Uh, so there was there's a lot of like pattern of if you go somewhere else, then you you if you find a group of like minded individuals, and that's that's kind of more like signaling uh not signaling no it's more like well i don't know coordination problem i guess it's it's yeah and it's just pragmatic and it's actually really really useful and and it's nice and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the yeah the uh, the very final part i'll say about that is d- discovering a little bit more and just just kind of thinking if you think about meditation which I think a lot of non-religious people would go like, yeah, that's nice, you know, it comes from the East and, you know, that's it's nice to be meditating and thinking about stuff and just you you order your thoughts, you structure your thoughts. And again, that's sort of you're working on your thinking apparatus, which is, which is a good thing. Well, in the West, prayer is nothing other than a meditation. I mean, sort of, you know, whether it's Buddhist monks meditating or, uh, you know, Catholic monks uh or Franciscan monks, you know, uh, praying, that, that's a similar type of thing. And so there are certain practices that we've developed, or the cultures developed, that are kind of like good practices, if that makes sense. And they're good practices for decision-making, especially. So uh, that's my, it's, a bit, it's a bit complex. It's kind of, I'm, I'm not like organized religious, but, uh, but I do, like, I see some things in there that are actually helping with, with uh, I think getting better at at making decisions like reflection, so as a practice, I'm I'm actually really pleased I did open that box because um, two two points on that is one I think you just spoke about religion better than I've heard you know most people ever speak about religion so that's wonderful and secondly because I like the fact and this is I'm this is how I'm now going to describe myself because I too would describe myself as agnostic but you you described yourself as probably agnostic <laughs> which is wonderful <laughs> which is wonderful yeah yeah I, yeah i think i'm spiritual i think i'm spiritual but i'm agnostic as to you know what it looks like and 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 again there are oh and by the way <laughs> this is another bit maybe i'll spoil this but uh maybe i should just stop but i'll say this one one other bit anyway you know i i think it it uh, and it drives a lot of like dogma is not good, right? Uh, but I don't look at religion. I mean, this is where the organized part is like, you know, it must be this way. And if it's not this way, so it's like, yeah, I don't like that. That's 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 counter to making good decisions. Yeah, but yeah. making Reli- more... religion without tolerance, religion without tolerance. Yeah, I think is the yeah. So that's ter- that's terrible, uh, right? But if you think about how do we progress, like what is like you come up with a hypothesis, and until you fail to disprove it, you know what is it? Well, it's it's a hypothesis. So uh, what hypothesis do we have about, you know, the sun and the earth? Well, the earth is, is firm and the sun revolves around the earth. Okay, that's a hypothesis. Like, is it part of the religion? How did it come about? So you're building, you're building hypotheses, but then you should test them. And then once you've tested them, you are... And so the point is that we cannot know everything, right? And so uh, there's, I think there's always room for for whimsy in a way but that's not to say that we shouldn't try to test it it's a bit like somebody said that you know and you know that's that's a basically a, a trope in the science fiction is that uh, any 
any uh, technology advanced enough looks like magic. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there there is a fuzzy boundary between uh, you know religion and science anyway at at the highest level. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. I don't think they're incompatible, is what I'm saying. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. I'm actually quite fascinated. Whilst um, probably agnostic is is currently my favourite term, I also am fascinated to see what my two young daughters grow up and describe the, themselves as because they both go to a uh, a C of E school, a Church of England school, but they are in, in, they are incredibly um, what's the word? They're very forthcoming with practice, not practicing with celebrating all religions because, of course their school is made up from people from all sorts of different backgrounds. So I have two young daughters who are both obsessed and fascinated with Diwali as much as they are with the nativity play. So I don't know if that means this kind of fuzzy religion, what that makes them, but they're going to, they're going to grow up into these kind of religious mongrels (laughs) where they have, where they have little bits of all sorts. And I think it's the best thing. I adore it. Yeah, this is incredible. And and speaking like our uh, eldest just graduated from primary and she's going uh, and and we placed her into a Catholic school. And, uh, you know, apart from the fact that there's just offers really good education, like outstanding education. Uh, we also thought, well, we're not going to teach her about religion, but it's part of a, you know, it's part of life, part of culture. So we're going to expose her uh, to that and then let her make up her own mind. So much like you said about your daughters. Yeah, it's nice. It's really nice. It's really refreshing, actually. Really refreshing. We, we should probably get back to our, our posers. So number number three is any books that you can recommend to our listeners? The Art of Strategy, A Game Theorist Guide to Success in Business and Life by Avinash Dixit and Barry Nailbuff. Uh, that's, that's it. That's the pitch. I mean, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it. Uh, the second is, uh, <clears throat> speaking of religion, um, is a little something that I picked up. Actually, I posted it from my mom. I don't know where she got it. Uh, it's it's a, a little penguin, little black classics book. Uh, costs two pounds. Uh, it has a pound sign in New Zealand, but you know, whatever. I don't know. I think she paid New Zealand dollars. Whatever. It's it's a it's very cheap. It's a fifteen hundred year old book. Uh, was written at, at around uh, five hundred forty, and it's called the Rule of Benedict. It's basically uh, the Rule of Saint Benedict. I find this book completely fascinating in looking at it from an organizational study point of view. He was talking about how to choose effectively mid-managers and i mean not everything there is is awesome because it was written 540 but i think that's a fascinating book it's not like i'm gonna say like you read this book and you know about everything there is to know like probably don't punish people with beatings yeah because it's just <laughs> something he recommends yeah the disciplinary procedures were quite archaic yeah to, to be fair <laughs> he does recommend it as a very as the, as the last resort and this is like okay. in the in the modern corporate uh, world, you know, there are certain transgressions that you're being walked out, you know, uh, and and uh, so, you know, maybe not with beatings, but but there is a process even to get there. And it is like, uh, you know, in the modern terms, it would be a disciplinary committee and performance management and whatever. It's just so fascinating that about 1500 years ago, I just wrote lots of stuff that we keep reinventing. It's like, why are we not learning from the from the history. So that's a, that's a good one. It's, you know, it costs nothing. Uh, and I think it's, it's just, and then, uh, the, the, uh, expanse series of books. Um, you know, there was a, um, 
a TV show called The Expanse. Um, so I've read all the books and currently reading the last one. It's a fascinating study of cultures and groups of people and just basically has a lot of, I think, an anthropological insights into developments of cultures and and conflict between people um, and uh, has some good and bad applications of game theory. Cool. Well, I, I know that at least two of those books have never come up before. So that is that is wonderful. And that's rare. It's becoming increasingly rare for that to happen. So thank you. And then num- number four is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reasons why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? Yes. So I'm dedicating it to Alexei Domorov. I actually don't know how he pronounces his his name, in, so I'm going to kind of anglicize it. Uh, he's been in Australia for like ages. He is also a, um, a written alum. Uh, he's done MBA in marketing uh, at Melbourne Business School. And uh, he runs a, a little agency, but it's an award-winning agency in, out of Queensland in Australia uh, called Green Lamp Marketing. And uh, he and his wife also run a multi-award-winning uh, Tilka tea company. It's an organic and multi-award-winning company. So Alexei helped me. He, he's a critical part of... Um, First of all, he did my branding. And I should say that whatever you like from my branding, that's him. Whatever you don't like, that's my <laughs> bastardizing of it. It's the client. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the client. Uh, so he, he told me that I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know much about design and uh, I'm a danger of butchering uh, stuff. But, but he, gave me, he gave me assets and then I put them together. So the branding is, uh, the logo is his. Like it's his, he's really good. Um, and... He basically did. So this is a nice story. He, I think, I think it's. A, he did. I, I was hassling him to help me, and he was like, "Okay, we're gonna have one conversation. Then you're not gonna hear from me for about five weeks. Then I give you stuff, and whatever I give you, you're just gonna use. And and if you, yeah, if you have, if you like those conditions, I will help you. If you don't like them, just just bugger off. And I like done. Like do it. Awesome." So there was no revision, there was no like first draft, whatever, there, there was no client feedback. He just came back with a brand book, said this, that's how you use it. Uh, these are the reasons, just, you know, go and use it. Have and, a nice day. <laughs> yeah, have a nice day. And so, and and I, this is brilliant. And I think he uh, deserves a, he's a critical part of, of what we're doing. And uh, it's just a cool guy too. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Well, I like that a lot. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Alexei Demorov. And apologies, Alexei, if, if that isn't the correct pronunciation, but we'll put um, the links a... to we'll put the links to uh his stuff uh in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, we'll link to that. We can link to that. We'll link to Green Lamp Marketing and um we'll dig out the tea company too. So that's perfect. Good to give that a nod. Uh, so as a final call to action, everyone can head over to this episode's listing to find all of those links. How else can they get more Andre Ivanov and more business games? So I like Twitter. Um, and, and I mean, that's, that's how we know each other. And that's how I know JP and, and, and Rory. And that's how I got to know Mark uh, Ritson to, to start with. Uh, the So Twitter at business games ai and that's my handle 
Uh, on LinkedIn, I'm also findable. I'm using more LinkedIn. I like it less, but I use it more now uh, since since the launch of uh, of business games. So I've got two things. Um, I have a uh, a favor to ask of the listeners is if they go to www.business-games.ai forward slash survey uh, and fill out a four minute survey, that would be a huge help. Well, well, we'll include that link so it's easy for them easy for them to do. Um, so Andre, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed our chat. It's been great. Giles, thank you so much for having me. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey.